Well, it's my privilege to be with you all tonight. I'm thankful for this time uh, where we get to gather together, encourage one another uh, through the singing of Scripture and hearing it proclaimed through many different godly men. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Forrest. I've been at Southside for a little bit over a year now. You've probably seen me playing over there on the guitar and singing My Little Heart Away. Um, I'm grateful to lead you guys through a passage of Scripture that in 2020 was one that really helped me get through that season of life. Um, you see, in that, in that year, some of my friends and I decided that we were going to memorize Scripture. Um, and so before COVID, before George Floyd, before lockdowns or presidential races, before I got a new job, before I got married, and even before I got engaged, I, I memorized this text and God has providentially used it to guide me through that very unique, crazy season of life. Uh, in 2020, I set out to memorize Colossians chapter 3. Um, and this is a great piece of scripture to kind of hide and tuck away in your heart. Um, and I could go through the whole chapter tonight, uh, but to, to mind the depths, we would be here until midnight. So I thought I would focus on the first four verses uh, these first four verses are the, are the bedrock of the whole chapter. Uh, they're the culmination of what Paul has been leading to in Colossians. Uh, and so let's turn there to Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 4. Um, and it says this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Children often in their young age ask the question, why? Uh, why are we going to the store? Why do I have to sweep the floors? Uh, and, and kids are normally asking this question for one reason. They're trying to get out of doing something. Um, but the question in it of itself is not a bad one. Um, the question why changes how we do things. It changes the way in which we try to do things. And so tonight's passage, it starts off with a, a, a charge and a large one at that, to seek the things that are above. Um, as those who've been raised with Christ, we're called to seek the kingdom of God. We're called to seek the things of God. We're called to seek the things of the spirit. We're called to seek the things that are above so on and so forth. Now, many people have many thoughts about what the things above consist of. And if I were trying to summarize it, I would say that we seek to proclaim Christ, we seek to be like Christ, and we seek to praise Christ. Now, notice that all these things kind of happen at the same time, right? When you are praising him, you are becoming like him. When you were proclaiming him, you were praising him. These are not things that are exclusive of one another. But in short, these are all things that are major parts of being a born-again Christian. If we were to sum this up, I would say that we are to seek our life in Christ. We're also called to set our minds on the things that are above. 
and not on the things that are on this earth. We're called to direct our thoughts towards the things of the Spirit, to set our minds on our life that we have in Christ. But before we get to the specifics of what it means to seek and set, we first must ask why we seek and set, because it changes the way in which we seek, right? Now, the reason for why we seek is, is quite simple. And in many ways, I think this whole passage is quite simple. If I were to summarize the whole passage, I would say, Christ is our life, so seek his life. So first, why do we seek? Paul gives us three reasons for why we seek, starting in verse three. He says, for you have died. Paul's first reason is this, our old life is gone. This verse reminds all of those who have come to know Christ that we all started in the same position. We all had that same first step. The first part of being a Christian is dying to ourselves, dying to our passions, dying to our self-made authorities, dying to our rebellion against God. At one point in every Christian's life, we lived a life of rebellion against God. And we didn't just live that life, we loved that life. The God who created us, who has all authority over us, this God gave us his rules for life. And he gave us those rules for life so that we would praise him for who he is and enjoy the life that he has given us. And instead of doing that, instead of praising him, instead of enjoying life within the boundaries that he set, we sought our own way. We were ruled by our own passions, passions that were hostile towards God, passions that resisted what God has told us to do and sought out everything that he's told us not to do. We committed mutiny against God, cosmic treason against the holy king. None is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks for God. Instead of praising him, we were hostile towards him, resisting his authority and hating his rule. We stood exposed before God, condemned by every revolt that we have ever raised against him. Every Christian's walk starts here, with dying to the life we once lived. We cannot seek our resurrected life if we don't first die to our sinful life. God in his mercy has given us Christ the God-man who has perfectly lived his life that we could not live. Christ's death on the cross has destroyed sin's power over us. So when we are crucified with Christ, when we die with Christ, we are freed from our sin. We are free from every earthly authority, including our own passions. And if we are raised with him, then we are free to seek the things that are above. Paul continues by saying, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This gives us our second reason, that, our, that we have a new life that is hidden in Christ. Our life is hidden in Christ, and this is good news. This, this reality kind of reminds me of a story that I had growing up, and I was fortunate to be raised in a neighborhood where there were many kids around my own age. And, and one day, my younger brother, my friend and I uh, were all playing outside of our homes. We were next door neighbors. And as we were playing, my friend's feathers began to get ruffled. 
uh, he started getting visibly annoyed by something we were doing. And I don't quite remember why, but I do remember what happened next. <laughs> he started mumbling some words underneath his breath. He went back to his garage. He grabbed a machete and his right hand. He motioned his dog with his left hand and he began to chase us around the house. Now, I know that's concerning. Um, <laughs> but just ignore that part. So my brother and I did what any fearful kid would do in that moment and we started running around the house just to get out of harm's way until we finally realized that instead of running circles around the house why didn't we just get inside of it and as soon as that thought came to our minds we took all the energy that was within ourselves and we hid ourselves in that house because in that house the dog's bite couldn't reach us the machete's blade couldn't pierce us and my friend's wrath was useless because we hid ourselves in that house the same way that that house protected me from my friend's wrath is the same way in which Christ now protects us from his wrath our life is hidden in Christ. When God looks at us, he can see nothing but Christ's righteousness. We have gone from being exposed in our rebellion and our treason to being covered by Christ's righteous life. He protects us from every trial and temptation that comes our way. He refutes every accusation of sin that would be charged against us. He withstands our own doubts and fears. And through it all, he stands secure. Consider for just a moment who we are hidden in. We are hidden in Christ. Christ who is the image of the invisible God. Christ who is wisdom incarnate. Christ who made all things in heaven and earth. Christ who established all authorities and thrones. Christ who holds all things together. Christ who is the only righteous man. Christ who is the only sinless sacrifice. Christ who is the maker of our new hearts. Christ who is faithful to his bride when she strays to and fro. Christ who is the king of kings. We are hidden in that Christ. Christ, all powerful, all glorious, we have nothing to fear for there is nothing and there is no one who can stand against Christ. This is, this is, this is good news. But it's only good news for those who are hidden in Christ. Every other rival authority will fall and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And if you are not hidden in him, then you will suffer the consequences without him. So hide yourselves in Christ. Paul goes on and he gives us his third reason in verse four. When he takes what he's just argued and he takes it even further when he says, when Christ, who is your life, appears then you will also appear with him in glory. What he's saying is that we're so hidden in Christ, we are so united to Christ, that Christ is our life. Our life is indistinguishable from Christ. Speaking with a brother recently, he said, I am more of myself when I look like Christ. And that brother understands this text. Christ is our life. We can't survive without him. Some people act differently if they miss their morning coffee. We act differently if we miss our morning word. We feel out of step if we miss the Sunday morning gatherings. We feel strange when we don't pray with one another. Our stomachs ache 
Our souls ache when we seek things other than God. We do nothing but depend on him. And although we have this life, although the mystery that was hidden for ages is now revealed, this is not something that we fully know or fully understand. For we see in a mirror dimly. We know just enough to taste and to long for. Although sin no longer has its power fully working in the world, we all groan for the day when our struggle with sin will finally be over. And when we clearly see our Lord for the first time. You see, when I got married a little bit over two months ago, I got to experience what this moment will be like for just a second. You see, the months leading up to my wedding were in a a lot of ways some of the most difficult days of my life. Multiple friends and family for different reasons at different times for varying lengths disapproved of Stephanie and I getting married. I was finishing up my last semester in college. She was starting her first semester of grad school. We had to start thinking about who to invite, who not to invite, and deal with the complaints based on our decisions. Where we would live, how we would have enough money, what church we would go to, do we have a first dance, do we have to cut the cake? Finding a job, a place to live, planning weddings, dealing with the opinions of others. All of that was exhausting. However, one thing that got me through it all was that I longed for, I longed for having Stephanie as my wife. So when the red doors of this very church building opened up and my now wife walked down the aisle and my new life with her was before my very eyes and the day had arrived, I still don't quite have words for it, right? How much more? How much more will we be at a loss for words when the final trumpet sounds and we hear angelic voices from above, when sin is no longer weighing on our hearts and the perishable takes on imperishable, when every pain and burden that we carried for Christ's name is proven to be worth it, and all of our work is shown to be precious, and we know that our place has been prepared for us when our faith is turned to sight as he descends from the clouds as we no longer see our Lord and Savior strictly through his word or his people, but face to face, shining like the sun. And, and we, we grin now. But on that day, we will be grinning from ear to ear because the one who lived and died and lived again stands before our very eyes, the king in all of his beauty. How much more will we be at a loss for words? These realities, these truths are the basis for why we seek the things that are above. Since they are the basis for how we seek the things that are above, how do they affect the way in which we seek? Well, we've died to sin, so we can no longer continue to live a sinful life. Our life is hidden in Christ, so we run towards him and the things that he has for us, not away from them. 
We have the promise and the hope of eternal life and communion with the living God. So we start to commune with him here, now. We're united with Christ. So we start to take on his image. We just start to become like him. Christ is our life, so we seek his life. Paul's reasons are clear. Our old life is gone. We have a new life hidden in Christ, and one day we will see that life fully. In short, Christ is our life. Christ is our life. And so we have to think in all of this, we have to realize how much of this, how much of him is our life because when we stand in eternity, we have to realize that who we will be for eternity is more of who we are now because who we will be for eternity is who we will be forever. Our sinful flesh will fade away. So away goes our old life. We should put off the old man for we have died to sin and we have a new life to seek in Christ. So, Knowing why we seek. What are we to seek? One example of what not to seek comes just a few verses earlier. Paul tells us that there was a group of people who were judging the Colossi Christians on what they ate and drank, different festivals that they did or didn't hold to. They spent their time assisting on asceticism or extreme self-denial and even the worship of angels. These things had the appearance of wisdom, but had no actual power to stop the flesh. If you talk to these, these false teachers, then what you would probably hear is that they thought that they were seeking the things of above. They would say that I am seeking the things of God. But these men were, thinking, were seeking the, the wrong things for the wrong reasons. Just think for a second. They were, they were seeking things that had the appearance of wisdom. I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to go after something that has the appearance of something else. Like if I'm eating dinner, I don't want to eat something that has the appearance of steak. I want the actual steak. We don't want to seek after things that have the appearance of godly things. We want to seek after the actual godly things. And if we want to seek after the things that are actually godly, then we have to actually know what that is. And that starts with knowing the word. Knowing who God is. If we want to proclaim God for what he's done, if we want to praise him for who he is, if we want to be like him, then we must actually know who he is and what he's done. Those men failed to start there. You see, you can easily tell if they were seeking the right things by asking three simple questions. Is the gospel being proclaimed? Are they becoming more like Christ? And is Christ being exalted? The answer to all three of those questions is no. They were not doing those things. Instead of the gospel being proclaimed, they were more focused on ceremonial laws Instead of becoming more like Christ, they became more like a God of their own making. Instead of exalting Christ, they exalted themselves. Instead of seeking their life in Christ, they sought their life in all of these other things. So what are we actually called to seek? Well, it's those three things. First, we're called to seek the things above by proclaiming Christ. Christ and Christ crucified. Not visions of angels, 
not food or drink, but Christ and Christ alone. Let me just say, when Christ returns, although it will be a glorious day for many of us, it won't be for others. The day of the Lord will be one where justice is carried out and everyone will be held accountable for what they have done and whom they have trusted in. This is a terrifying, although just, reality. And this is not something that we can just be heartless about. If you don't care about the salvation salvation of others, then you don't really know who you're looking at. If you don't care about the salvations of others, then you miss a fatal part of who Jesus is. He cared for all people. He preached the good news everywhere and had a heart for those who didn't know him. To seek the things that are above is to proclaim Christ's good news. We're also supposed to seek the things that are above in order to be like him. This is really clear when you look at the rest of chapter three, where it shows if we're not becoming more like Christ by putting off our old body of sin and putting on the new body in Christ, then we're not really seeking the things that are above. Following verses three and four, Paul says, put to death therefore, or in other words, therefore put to death what is earthly in you. In light of our life being hidden in Christ, we're supposed to put to death the earthly body and put on the new self. This is the same reasoning that Paul gives for seeking the things that are above. So seeking the things that are above means putting the earthly body to death. This this makes sense when you look at some other verses in the Bible like we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We know we love him if we keep his commandments. To seek the things that are above is to become like Christ. The last thing that we are supposed to seek when we are seeking our life in Christ is to seek God's praise and exaltation. In the church, we can often seek the wrong things for the wrong reasons. In our ministries, we can seek the wrong things for the wrong reasons. How many things do we do in church that are for our own glory and not for Christ? I don't want to be like these Colossian 2 men. We as Christians should not aim to be like these Colossian 2 men. If our ministries aren't exalting Christ, if they aren't glorifying God, then we shouldn't be doing them at all. When we seek to do ministry in this building and in this church, it means that we should exalt Christ and not ourselves. To seek the things above is to exalt him. When we seek our resurrected life, we seek to proclaim Christ, become like him, and to praise him. How should we do this? How are we to seek? Well, the first thing that we should know about seeking is that we seek with the right passion. We are not called to be lazy in our faith. We are not called to be apathetic 
in our faith. We are not called to just stumble through life hoping for the perfect gospel opportunity or just hoping that magically the sins that we still struggle with will just one day disappear. No, we're called to seek. We are called to vigorously, passionately run after these things. When I was attending our Thursday night gospel community, I'd walk into the Ryan's house and they would know that I was there from the sound of my feet dragging on the floor. What many people of that GC didn't know is that when Stephanie and I arrived at the Rounding's house for GC, we both step out of the car and start walking towards the door and just like that, she'd hear the sound and she'd look at me and she'd lovingly say, Forrest, pick up your feet. In that same way, dear Christian, pick up your feet. Pick up your feet and run towards the things that God calls you to. Pick up your feet and run and proclaim his good news. Pick up your feet and run to put that sin to death. Pick up your feet and run to give God praise for who he is and what he's done. And Matthew, Jesus gives us a picture of what seeking looks like when he tells us the par- this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. He goes and all that he has, he commits to the Lord. He commits to obtaining this field. Seeking in this verse means committing our entire lives, our entire beings to our life in Christ. We're not running towards a new car. We're not running to a new house. We're not running just to get to the weekend to indulge in our desires. We're running towards our everlasting life in Christ. So let's act like it and seek like we have something worth seeking. Let's seek knowing that our life in Christ is ever before our eyes. Secondly, when we seek, we start seeking by setting our minds on the things that are above. You've probably heard the phrase, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Well, I disagree with that because in reality, the journey of a thousand miles starts with deciding where that journey is going to take you. After church, when I'm asked to go to lunch, I don't just respond, yeah, that sounds good. I'll meet you at lunch and then get in my car and drive away. No, we spend time deciding where it is we're going the first thing we do when we are seek, when we're supposed to be seeking is to set our minds on the things that are above. Now, when we set our minds on our life in God, it means that we're setting our minds on who God is and what he has done. Quickly, look at the relationship between seeking and setting, even in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, where it says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. In verse, er, in verse 13, 
we see that because God has forgiven us, we also must forgive. The actions that we do, the things that we're called to seek after, are either rooted in who God is or what he's done. So in order to motivate us to do these things, we have to set our minds on these things. We have to set our minds on our life in Christ, on who he says he is and what he has done. You see, when we think of God's grace and his kindness, and we think of how his grace and kindness have been displayed through us in Christ, then it moves us to be gracious and kind. When we remember how God has forgiven us, then it moves us to be forgiving. And even as we talk about the things now, as we set our minds on the things of God, on our life in Christ, and it it motivates us to do all that he has called us to. So then know God, know whose life you are taking, know what that life has done for you, and you will be motivated and strengthened to do all that God calls us to do. Go to his word and set your mind on Christ and his life. Lastly, if we are to seek well, we have to not only set our minds on the things that are above, but we have to resist the temptation to set our minds on the things of the earth. Here's the truth. Our former life in sin our former desires, the things that we struggle with in some ways are pleasurable and perversive. The sins that we struggle with are often easier to do than the life that we've been called to in Christ. It's done by our friends. It's done by our family. It's done by our coworkers. We can't run from it. We can't hide from it. We can't run from sin. We can't hide from the desires of this earth. And before sin comes out in our actions, it lodges itself firmly in our minds. And that's why Paul deals so heavily with things like anger and wrath and malice because the moment I let my anger wander in my mind, the next thing I know is that it comes out of my mouth. And then when it comes out of my mouth, it turns into a physical action that I am doing. It's like that kid that chased me around my house. His anger went from his thoughts to his words to his actions. These things aren't easy to resist. They surround us. One example that comes to mind is is, is crude joking. How many times have we heard a joke at work that was crude or dehumanizing or woefully inappropriate and we let that, we not only hear that joke, but we let it take place in our minds. We let it wander. We add on to that joke. Another one is sexualization in the workplace, men and women, both. It's the quick comment of, you might want to go check out who just walked in. And letting our minds think on those things. We can't set our minds on these things. We can't give them even an inch because they are a slippery slope. They are what destroys marriages. They are what destroys our witness. The fight for our life doesn't start with what we do. It starts with what we think about. It's hard to resist these things, but we have to remember that as much pleasure that these things may bring, it's only for a moment. 
and then comes destruction. A moment gazing at a woman or a man who isn't yours will never compare to a marriage that God has blessed. A moment laughing at a crude joke will never compare to the laughter and joy that is had between brothers and sisters in Christ. So don't set your minds on these things. Don't set your minds on the thoughts of this world. Set your minds on Christ, who he is and what he's done. To wrap us up, the hymn, Hold On to God's Unchanging Hand, comes to mind when thinking about seeking and setting. In the third verse, it says this, covet not this world's vain riches that so rapidly decay. Seek to gain the heavenly treasures. They will never pass away. Hold to his hand, God's unchanging hand. Hold to his hand, God's unchanging hand. Build your hope on things eternal. Hold to God's unchanging hand. The things of this world will never compare to the things of God. We have to seek to gain the heavenly treasures. We have to seek the things that are above. We have to build our lives on things that are eternal, not the things that will pass away. Christ's life is just over the horizon. And before you know it, this life will fade away. And our new life will be before our very eyes. Christ is our life, church. Will you seek it?